Welcome to the Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I am Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for this October 2014 issue of NCP is Nutrition Support Challenges. Providing nutrition and nutrition support during or in the aftermath of a natural disaster would certainly be classified as a nutrition support challenge. We have three excellent papers in the October issue about surviving a natural disaster and how it affected them personally and in their programs. So today, we are happy to have Dr. Albert Brokus joining us from Atlanta. Currently, he is the Chief Medical Officer at Atlanta Medical Center, and formerly, Dr. Brokus was the Chief Medical Officer at Methodist Hospital in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Brokus if he has any disclosures on this topic that he'd like to share. Yes, Jeanette, and thank you for the invite. I just want to make sure that the opinions that I'll be expressing and the recollections are purely my own, and they're neither from the former Methodist Hospital nor Atlanta Medical Center. Well, thank you, Dr. Brokus, for joining me today. I know we watched your story unfold on the news, and I've heard you tell your story, and you did an excellent job of writing about your story in NCP. And, in fact, you tell your story in detail in the article. And I know that your experience didn't affect just one day, but many days and months after that disaster. But I'm wondering if you can just kind of briefly summarize your experience and your involvement in Hurricane Katrina and kind of summarize what you wrote about in your article. Well, let me begin first by saying that in New Orleans, hurricane preparedness is sort of part of our city's DNA. Katrina was definitely a much different hurricane. And it wasn't the strength of the winds since when it made landfall in the Louisiana-Mississippi state line. It was a weak Category 3 and certainly less in the New Orleans area. Although the day before it had been predicted as a Category 5 heading straight to New Orleans, and that would have been a bigger disaster because, as you know, New Orleans sits like a bowl below sea level. To the north, it has Lake Pontchartrain, and to the south, the Mississippi River. And this hurricane was coming up to the west of the Mississippi, so it would have pushed water up the river, flood the city, go further north, and then empty out the lake onto this bowl, if you will. What was more devastating than the winds was Katrina's flooding, which persisted for weeks. And at the hospital, our various departments went through their regular preparations and selection of essential personnel. And as the chief medical officer, I solicited the help of our medical staff service coordinator the day before, it was a Saturday, and requested a hard copy of all the medical staff members and she, in turn, contacted the members or initiated the chain of calls to our medical executive committee to assure that we would have adequate medical care and adequate representation along the lines of specialties. Now, at Methodist, we experienced some wind damage, but were severely affected by flood 
which began, I would say, within four or five hours, around 9.30 in the morning, we already had four and a half feet of water on the first floor. On that floor were located the kitchen and cafeteria, central supply, radiology, emergency room, medical records, information systems, telephones, and more importantly, the emergency backup generator for the old tower. So immediately, we lost power, computers, phones in that part of the hospital. The newer tower had a generator on the rooftop, but it had a similar fate many hours later when it ran out of fuel because the pump that fuels that particular generator is also located very low on the ground floor. But our dedicated staff, and by that I mean nursing, ancillary, volunteers that were there, were quick to adapt to the changes, and in particular, our engineering staff, who were able to obtain some diesel fuel later on and were able to restart the rooftop generator on a limited basis at that time. Certainly challenges were faced early with ventilated patients, those requiring hemodialysis, and those initially on pumps for IV fluids, total parental nutrition, tube feedings, etc. I would say that the 19 members of the medical staff who were there assured that the best care was provided under the circumstances, and they were able to accommodate for the lack of pumps due to battery failure, which occurred about the third day. So in some cases, they felt there was no longer a need for the fluids. In some cases, it was a matter of doing the old drop count technique or even to use gravity. I have to tell you from a personal perspective that as we were looking rather depressed at not having the communications, et cetera, by about the fourth day, I personally had a patient who had a ileal fistula, and I just said, to heck with it, you know, I'll accept the increase in fluid output from the fistula, and I just gave her regular liquids, and the next day I gave her half of a sandwich, and she was delighted. As a matter of fact, I made sure she had a sandwich when she was getting ready to be evacuated. Majority of the building was dark, hot, muggy, and toilets were not functional at all. Communications were non-existent except for an occasional garbled cell phone connection. And even when the helicopters began to evacuate our patients late that Wednesday, now Katrina hit on Sunday, so it was three days later, as the helicopters came to rescue, we had no communication, so we didn't even know what type of patients they would accommodate, whether ambulatory, wheelchair-bound, or stretchers. So we had to have a cadre of each ready on the rooftop. And most of the triage was done by some of our medical staff members under the direction of the medical director of our critical care, as well as our chief operating officer. I, on the other hand, spent a lot of my time trying to get some kind of communication back to Atlanta where my family had evacuated and they were initiating a lot of phone calls to the local media here and to alert the world, if you will, that Methodist Hospital was still around. The reason I say that is that early in the experience, we had a battery-powered television and we could see the reports of what was going on in the city, but not once was our hospital named we were totally surrounded by water. The greatest concern for us was the feeling of lack of communication, a feeling of abandonment, but I have to tell you that the experience was a life-changing one for most of us, and 
for most of us, in the majority of the cases, it brought the best in humanity. I've heard your story before, but every time I hear it, it's just amazing to hear what you and your team and your patients and all those who were gathered at the hospital went through. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, Dr. Brokus, but you talked about how uh, the hospital was prepared for hurricanes and you had a preparedness plan for emergencies. So in what ways did you find those plans helpful? And maybe I can add to that. In what ways could you not have prepared for what happened? I think that having, even though we make light of it at times, having three ring binders or electronic preparedness plans for each one of the various departments and having them revised on an annual basis. And usually we would get a notice to do this sometime before hurricane season. So sometimes in June, July, you will be told to start looking at preparedness manuals. I think that one of the things that was always stressed to us is to constantly identify who are the essential personnel. Now, for us, that sufficed. In other hurricane preparedness or disaster preparedness, I think there's another model that looks at A and B teams so that if you can replace one team, and we did this recently at Atlanta Medical Center with our eye storm, so that you can bring in a new fresh team. They know they're going to be here for three days, and in the other three days, others come in and, and relieve. But for hurricane, for the most part, Every time we went through this exercise for real, it was just an exercise of two or three days. So we'd take, you know, our clothes and so on for, for a three-day period. I think that the response to, if I could say the success of why we survived a lot, is the preparation that took place two or three days before. For instance, our food service, nutrition and food service department director, did not wait to hear a particular directive from our administrative staff. He took it upon himself to find that the the supplier was not going to be available, selected a second one who said that he could not deliver, and he and the regional director went and rented one of the last U-Haul trucks and just loaded everything they could of supplies. Then they heard from our nearby wholesale uh, club that they were going to get rid of a lot of the perishables, they went over there, grabbed that as well, and decided to pick up a, a gas grill. And that gas grill came into use about the second or third day because they were using it to make soup. This is on the patio. And so that was one example. Remember that by 9.30 that morning, 9.30 time o'clock, we already had four and a half feet of water. And that's the cafeteria. They were actually, because it was a Monday, getting ready to cook red beans and rice, which is a staple on Mondays in, in uh, Louisiana. It's a long story about that. Our pharmacists had made arrangements on the fourth floor. Very quickly, our emergency department moved up to the second floor and then later on to the fourth floor. So it was that quick thinking, but quick thinking because they've been through exercises before and, and sort of questioned the what-ifs. So I think that that was uh, very pivotal. What I would do differently in retrospect is to have a disaster prepared manual or plan for the nutrition support team because we do have a nutrition support team manual but not for disasters. I would take from each one of the component departments what each one does and who are the essential individuals but make sure that there's a linkage to nutrition support and outline not the person but the function 
because then that leads into the concept of transdisciplinarity, where we concentrate on function and not form or function and not an individual. I think the other thing that is important, and in this case, or in previous cases, about two days before or one day before, particularly if it's going to be a weekend, we gather all the directors and all the administrative staff, find out who's going to be where, make sure we have up-to-date telephone numbers, and then have sort of a guide from one of our engineers as to how we're doing with potable water, generators, what things to bring, what not to bring. And of course, we like to have a big involvement with our medical staff, case management, etc., to make sure that we send people home long before the hurricane makes landfall. Because once it makes landfall, it's very difficult to send people out. And on the contrary, you have to be ready to accept emergencies. One of the things that I really liked in your article is Table 3 in your article. It was called Your Rule of Keys for Disaster Preparedness. And I'm just wondering, is this a list that you kind of generated after your experience, or was it compilation from somewhere else? And I'm wondering which of those 50 items really stand out the most for you. Well, I have to admit that it started out as a very small list, and as time went on and, you know, I had evacuated to Atlanta, would read articles, or other people would look at my list of pieces and say, what about this, what about that? It's sort of an amalgamation of additional thoughts, other people's presentations, and so on. I think out of that list that perhaps a handful are the ones that I would say have been the most important And I would probably say first, communication. So phones, extremely important. I would suggest to you that satellite phones should be available as well. I recall, and I almost hate to admit it, that my family had tried to contact me on two occasions that they had contacted me via text. And apparently, even though you couldn't get a voicemail message or the telephones wouldn't work, the text messaging was able to get through at times. The only problem was little old me did not know how to do text messages at that time. I very quickly learned, but it was a little bit too late. So communication, you know, because I think a large percentage of our anxiety, despair, and even the sense of abandonment would have been ameliorated if we had communications. I think, secondly, of course, power, having that backup generator working, assuring the adequacy of emergency generators, regardless of what disaster. And, of course, now more and more of the hospitals that are built have the generators higher up, and now we know we have to have the pumps higher up as well. On that, let me also say that when we lost power completely on the second generator and then were able to locate through our creative engineering folks that went on a little boat to other areas that they could hear the clicking of the generators and take some of that uh, diesel fuel, that one of the challenges, believe it or not, was to prime the pump. And they finally got it, but in my armamentarium now, you need to add a, if I'm not mistaken, it's a can of hairspray or WD-40, because you you could have all the fuel you want to. If you cannot create that spark, the generator doesn't work. I hope I'm quoting my engineer correctly. I think the, the third thing is people and personnel. And by that, I mean, you know, have the right people on the bus, if you will, or the bus experience and determining, you know, the essential hospital and medical staff personnel. You know, I don't think we would have been as successful if we had had 19 radiologists, you know, or we had 19 pediatricians. But instead, we had one radiologist, one pathologist, several internists, the chief of surgery, myself, one orthopedic surgeon. And there were people there that could take care of 
practically any emergency as such. Number four, I would say preparation, including family, you know, because if you know that everything's been taken care of at home, and we spent a lot of time Saturday boarding up, and, you know, I was more expecting the big one. My wife was upset because I was moving furniture up one flight of stairs and all that, and we had done that in the past, you know, for not taking the furniture out in the yard and dumping into the pool, which was uh, a headache afterwards to, you know, getting the pool to take the furniture out. But guess what? It was a lot cleaner because of the chlorine. Just preparing your family first, making sure that as a family you have a central point to communicate with or to evacuate to that is outside the strike zone. And so when you get to the hospital and you have to hunker down there, as we say in Louisiana, you don't have to think as much about the family is okay. You know, they have arrived, they were there, they were doing well. And then I would say, lastly, and probably most importantly, is to pray. And to pray, as I say in the article, often, individually, and collectively. And not just praying, but just have faith in that eventually everything's going to be okay. And that was one thing that was very, very strong, that we supported each other throughout this. And, you know, all the barriers came down, whether it was from one profession to another, whether it was racial. Now, we were all literally in the same boat. We had a chaplain available. I recall having to stop what I was doing to console. I think this is Thursday night. You know, the patients were being taken away, evacuated, but the families could not go with them. And so we did not know where these patients were going to either. And it was about 10 o'clock at night, a floor higher than the office I was in, And this young lady was literally freaked out. She herself was recovering from cancer. Her mother, who was an elderly female with dementia, had been evacuated at 9 o'clock that morning, between 9 and 10. Now, it's been 12 hours, and they had promised somebody in a helicopter, this young lady, that she would follow in the next helicopter. That never happened. So I spent a good bit of about... 45 minutes on a one-on-one, you know, trying to find out, you know, about her mother, tell me who's this persona about her. And not that I could resolve the problem of getting her to her mother because we didn't know, nor she could have gotten a helicopter ride until we got through with all the patients, but at least she was calmer. And on another occasion, just spending five, ten minutes with an employee that you could see in their face, they were about the kids. I got someone to see one of our, I think it was one of our radiology techs that brought the kids, and they were afraid that they were having some abdominal pain, and could this, you know, be the beginnings of cholera or what have you, because, you know, it was hot, muggy. We were even using the sanitary wipes on the stairs, on the uh, rails, to prevent any kind of contamination or bacteria to populate. And we also, as soon as I heard that, of course, being a surgeon, I'm not as well-versed in infectious disease, but we have our chief of staff was an infectious disease doctor, so I went looking for him, and he came and was able not only to examine the child, but to give the mother the assurance that she needed. So, you know, it's not just the praying, it's that that sense of belonging, that that sense of community, and that sense that, you know, we're going to get through this, you know, one way or the other. And you go, you know, you go through waves of that. You try to call and nobody answers, or you can't get through. You get thirsty. Thank God we had water. We have plenty of water towards the end because our engineers, and I love that picture that we show in the article, 
even though there were water moccasins in the area, they were chest deep, and they went from the hospital across the parking lot to the six floors of the building with a master key and, you know, took out every five-gallon jug of water. That was brought to the administration where smaller jugs were given to the various floor captains. So as we went along, we improvised, and things were getting more and more organized. And, of course, I'm glad we did the article because I found things that I had assumed were totally different. I thought we began to run out of food. In essence, what the food uh, directors had done was to freeze large turkeys and ham and so on in ice cream coolers. And they said that we would have had, even on Friday, we would have had another five days where we could have managed. Now, keep in mind, we had at the height 760 people, of which 170 were patients. But we did it. And again, you know, a lot has to do with having faith and thanking God for all our blessings. That kind of leads us to that next concept. You use the term transdisciplinarity. So can you tell us what you mean by that term and kind of why it was so important for you? Well, I kind of grabbed that concept from a mutual friend of ours, Ronnie Chernoff, when she was president of the American Dietetic Association, and now it's called the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics. She brought out the concept of transdisciplinarity. I think it was part of her presidential address, and over the years I've been intrigued by that. And then I reflect on our history as nutrition support teams that started in the late 70s. And it was the multidisciplinary teams because we wanted the identity. We had a doctor, we had a pharmacist, we had a nurse, we had a dietitian. And it came from the departments of those respective areas. And then as we really delved into making rounds and we sat there developing protocols, we began to work together across the various disciplines by retaining, you know, our identity. So we went to the concept, which is still now, interdisciplinary. As a matter of fact, initially, the mission statement for Aspen was that we would be the multidisciplinary society and so on. Much later, we changed it to interdisciplinary, which to this day it exists, and I'm still pushing for this concept of transdisciplinarity. Many times, you'll be in a team, and in particular the support team, and you say, well, you know, so-and-so is not here today, or we lost the position of the dietitian and the support team, so it's going to be very difficult to do this and the other. Why? That is because we have engaged ourselves in this concept that only the dietitian can do a nutritional assessment. Only the pharmacist can do an effective parental and enteral calorie count. You know, in South America, I can tell you, that dietitians even mix filoparental nutrition. And, and so the concept for me is one that I try to not only effect on nutrition, but rather across all teams so that no one is fixed in their position, but the function continues. Now, we all come at the same time to the table and we participate in the development and explanation of what the function should be. But who performs that function is the individual that is best suited at the time and in the particular environment, so long as it is within the limits of the license to practice in the particular state. It's it's like a cross-functional team. That's an example. And I think you kind of showed that in your article, how everybody had their responsibilities, but you worked together and took each other's responsibilities to get things done. 
as a matter of fact, I don't know whether you're aware, there was an interesting anecdote when we were sending the pictures to the article that one of your editors said, we need the name of the janitor that's sweeping the roof. I said, that's not the janitor, that's the chief of surgery. Yeah. <laughs> I said, that's transdisciplinary at his best. Three days earlier, I had assisted him in doing an abdominal exploration in the bed in ICU after having done a radiology procedure with a portable machine that was in the old towers OR on the second floor and they wheeled it over to the new towers ICU using natural light and flashlights. That same guy three days later was sweeping the roof to make sure that no one would trip bringing the patients in. Taking care of every little detail. Right. I know that this certainly changed your life and your experiences. So do you have any recommendations you want to leave with our listeners? Some kind of pearls of wisdom? Well, you can lose stuff, you know, but your health and your family are the things that you want to cherish. And I became a little bit more tolerant as I went along with this experience. I am more patient to critique and that aspect of it. For others, what I would say is be prepared, challenge assumptions. You know, when you hear, oh, we can't do this, think out of the box because it may mean your survival. Look at the what-ifs, practice, 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 have good communications, have good backup, link up to the individual department directors, and learn about what the other group is doing. Learn a little bit about them so you can become more of a transdisciplinarian, if you will. And before we conclude, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience today, Dr. Barokas? I'd like to share with the audience one thing that really is more for Aspen. And I would like to challenge Aspen to have a rapid response disaster team that could provide assistance via communications to members and others during disasters. It could be like we did with a family, sort of a central repository of contact numbers, facilitating external communications or even transfer of care. Let's say that I had a particular patient that was requiring a very unique type of nutrition support that required to be in hospital. Then Aspen looks up the directory and says, yes, in this particular instance, there are three institutions that would probably be the best for you to contact or for us to help you contact or facilitate the transfer. That would be, you know, my message. And then the the other thing is, and I alluded to that in the article, because of the loss of batteries, I'm just wondering if anyone ever thought about developing a solar-powered battery for IV and parental enteral pumps. It could be a moneymaker for some inventive dietitian, nutritionist, pharmacist, who knows? That Those are the things that I would leave with. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today, Dr. Brokus, and for sharing your experience with, with our listeners. I do encourage our listeners to read his full article in the October 2014 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. It's entitled, Once Upon a Storm, Katrina and Nutrition Support or the Lack Thereof. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Brokus. Thank you for the honor.